The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Before we bring out our special guest, Tony Opetisano, keep in mind, the show is made possible by viewers and listeners like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com to contribute. Enjoy the show. How are you, Paul? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm hanging in, buddy. Hanging in. How you been? I've been good. I've been good. I'm trying to think. What what has it been like? Three three years? Two years? I can tell you exactly when it was. It was December seventh, two thousand seventeen. Was the last time we talked? Yeah, I thought but, it was about uh, around. Yeah, you're looking good, sir. Hanging in, pal. I'm hanging in. So are you. So so just for your edification, that's a photo that was taken at a concert in in uh, Rhode Island. Next to it is the gold record of my way that he gave me, as I I explained that in the book. And then this is the uh, my duets, triple platinum, platinum and gold. And this was a project that I did with Charles Koppelman's son-in-law. Uh, we did a series of albums called Mob Hits. It was music from from the mob movies. Oh, and. He wasn't he wasn't all that well versed in Sergio Franchi and Jerry Vale and Al Martino and people like that. So I became the music consultant. We did Mob Hits One, Mob Hits Two, Mob Hits Christmas. It was a pretty successful project. Interesting. It's always yeah. cool when the background of whoever the guest is is interesting. Sometimes you get a plain wall, but in this case we get some yeah. real action here. <laughs> oh well, thank you. Thank you. I want to introduce everybody to the man who is kind enough to let us into his home. His name is Tony El Pedesano. And the last time we talked before we went on the air, that was on the radio. I kept calling you Mr. El Pedesano. And then finally you said, Paul, if we're going to make this interview work, just call me Tony. <laughs> and so he's known to a lot of people as Tony O. He has a very interesting history in the music and entertainment business. He has just written this book. It's entitled Sinatra and Me in the Wee Small Hours. And Tony Opetisano, Tony O, he worked for Frank Sinatra as his road manager. He was a friend and confidant. The last time he was on, it was a very interesting interview. He even sang. I remember that. And I'm so honored to have you back. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. I'm, I'm thrilled that you asked me again. Well, how does it feel? You know, a book is a, a something that doesn't happen overnight. There it is. At long last, you're, you're looking at the book. How does it feel now that it's out? Yeah, there's a, there's a variety of feelings. I'm very happy about it. I'm feeling like I lived up to something I told Frank that I probably would do. I'm very happy that I fulfilled something that Mrs. Nancy Sr. asked me to do way back in the mid-90s. And it's a pleasure to be able to share stories with the world that Frank wanted them to hear. Uh, you know, at some point, he was thinking about writing a book himself. He just never got around to it, couldn't bring himself to sit down and do it. And so sharing some of the stories, especially the humorous ones and the ones from his childhood, it brings me great joy to be able to share that with the world and also give the world an opportunity to, as I say, let me pull the drape back and get a glimpse of the man that, that I knew that I was fortunate enough 
to know, which very few people in the world got to know him that well or that side of him. So in addition to wanting to get these stories out, you you mentioned Mrs. Nancy Sinatra Sr. She wanted you to write this book. What was it that got you to think, you know what, the timing is right. This book, I've got to, I've got to write this book and get it out there into the world. You know, it's a combination, it was a combination of things, Paul. I had started writing it way back within two years or so of Frank's passing. And then for a variety of reasons, uh, I put it aside. Uh, some of those reasons had to do with some family stuff that was happening. And then I went to revisit it and, and then I was getting heavily involved when I transitioned from being Rickles's road manager to his manager. He was also beginning to have some health issues. And I, uh, I had to rebuild his, his act, uh, adding video and stuff like that. I just got preoccupied with other things. And the truth be told is it's ironically enough, Alan Nevins, who was my representative on this, uh, with Renaissance management. He used to work for Swifty Lazar, Irving Swifty Lazar, and there was a book deal in place for Barbara Sinatra back in the early 90s, and that kind of uh, went by the wayside for a variety of reasons. And ironically enough, Alan used to work with Swifty, and I ran into Alan at Barbara Sinatra's funeral. We we met afterwards for coffee, and he said, you know, when are you going to revisit doing that book now, hmm. you know? Unfortunately, he says, you know, Rickles passed away a couple of months ago and, you know, your schedule is a little bit lighter now than it was, even though I have a full on production company, as you probably know, and I have a, you know, producing partner who's also an actor and a client. But that's really what did it. It's like, you know, I've got all these notes and I sat down with Alan and I showed him all the stuff that I had written at that point already. And he said, you know, you really got something here. You really should. You really should pursue it. And so that's what got the, uh, the ball rolling again. And here we are. And what about the reader? What is it that you want someone who picks up this book, Sinatra and me? What do you want them to walk away from this experience of, of reading the book? I'm hoping that they will finally realize that at the end of the day, as huge as an entertainment icon as Frank was, he was just a, a regular guy who had great familial values and great sense of moral ethics and great empathy and, and very personable, very compassionate, very giving, very loyal. And that's the man I I, I'm hoping that they will get to finally have a picture of in their mind. And, you know, as he used to say, hey, I'm just a regular guy. So I, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time, including me. <laughs> Something that you mentioned in the book that really, when I'm reading, I always try to use my imagination and, and picture things. You mentioned mm -hmm. about yeah. the, the late night conversations, and that really mm -hmm. intrigued me. When you were staying up and talking about whatever, what were those kind of talks like? Believe it or not, extremely casual. Hmm. We would be, for example, especially down in the desert, many, 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 many nights. Uh, we had dinner, just the three of us, Barbara, Frank, and myself. By 10 o'clock or so, Barbara would wander off to bed, and Frank would I, we'd be sitting in the den 
uh, with the TV on in the background, maybe having, you know, a couple of beverages. And then we would wander out and sit by the pool because down in the desert, you know, the, the beauty of the desert and the serenity and very casual and just one subject to another subject to another subject. It was just no stress whatsoever. It was just things that he felt like talking about and would ask me things about my own life. And, uh, and often we would get into talking about music and the um, uh, having been a performer. And I'm thrilled and honored that he actually appreciated me as a performer, both as a musician and a singer. Sometimes we would get we would get off because we'd always have music playing and we would go off into discussing music, the art of singing, you know, his approach, what what set him apart from all of the other vocalists. You know, you could take a recording that was done by 10 or 12 different singers. And yet Frank's more times than not is the definitive version and why that is. It's just it was all about his approach. But the conversations were very relaxed and. He enjoyed, we enjoyed each other's company. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to do. So on that note, the, the art of singing, what mm-hmm. would you say? It's so true so many times. The definitive version, you can listen back to back, five different t- versions of a certain classic. And you hear Frank's yeah. and it's like, wow. What is it? <laughs> Combination of things. The first of The first of all would be that what would attract Frank to a song? I mean, obviously the melody had a lot to do with it. However, he always listened very, very closely to a lyric and he approached the lyric as though it were a script to a play or a, or a, or a film. And he said, like an actor, if you can pull something out of your own personal experiences that connects you to that lyric, it lends far more depth to that, that lyric. And then in addition to that, he would always try to convey a thought in, in one singular breath, the way we speak. For example, he used to say, you, you, you never know what you're about to say till a split second before it comes out of your mouth, but yet you never run out of air until you've completed that thought, just like what I just did. Hmm. He said, so why know ahead of time what you're going to sing, what you know, what you want to convey lyrically, why shouldn't you be able to do that as best you can in one breath, unbroken, to get your message across? He said, you have to approach it as though it were a trip on, on, on the freeway, where you're starting at one point and you're looking to make it from here to here, and there are no gas stations in between. So you have to fuel up as best you can before you get in, wait as long as you need to get to get in so that you can make it all the way through without having to breathe. And that's why, as he did as a young man, he even continued to do as an older man, where he would swim, but he would swim predominantly underwater. And he would use that almost as a, as an exercise, where he would think of a song in his head and in, in a specific tempo, and he would prepare for a specific lyric that he knew was six bars, eight bars long, he would take a breath and he would dive under the water. And if he had to come up for air before he completed the song in the tempo in his head, he knew he needed to work on it a little bit more. That's how deeply he went into things when he was, when he was performing. Fascinating. You know, I said, 
I had that. I had this conversation with a young singer, and he's a very, very talented young man. And we were talking about again, just like now, the art of singing. And I, I relate to him what I just said to you. And he looked at me with this puzzled look on his face, and he says, "Oh my God!" I said, "What?" He said, "You guys were thinking that deeply about this stuff when you were up on the stage." I said, "Well, yeah, we weren't up there selling flowers. We were up. We were up there singing. So of course, yes, that's what we did." <laughs> Hmm. You know, when I listen to live recordings of Frank Sinatra, something that I notice, and perhaps other people have noticed, I'm sure, some of the banter, Frank Sinatra had such a unique sense of humor. And Yes, he did. I'm wondering if you could speak of that. I'm trying to think of, of some stuff that I could say that's clean. <laughs> uh, wow. Wow. You know, right now I'm at a loss. There are so many of no, he just he enjoyed having he enjoyed having fun on stage. And as I said about the, the, the rat pack, they were having a ball, they were just letting the audience in on it. Hmm. And he just there was one forget for example, there was a she may be weary, women do get weary, wearing the same shabby dress. But when she's weary, the real lyric is Try a little happiness. He, he used to say, well, when she's weary, buy her another shabby dress. <laughs> I mean, his sense, he, liked, he liked playing with the lyrics. It just, uh, it kept things alive for him. It wasn't static and, you know, the same old, the same old thing. There was one, one incident, I'm not sure if I talked about it in the book, but he and Al Viola, who was another good buddy of mine, Frank's longtime guitarist, they were together for a long time. The only the only person in his entourage that, that, that was with him longer was Bill Miller, the great late Bill Miller. But in between shows at Caesars, some nights they would do two shows. So in between, they'd go in the dressing room and have a little light bite, maybe some pizza and quite a bit of booze. So they go back out on stage and... Frank summoned Al to come out of the orchestra and they were doing something just voice and guitar. And Frank made a joke with the lyric and everyone was laughing, but then he went up on the lyric. He couldn't remember how to get back in. And he turned to Al and he said to Al, what the hell's the next line? And Al <laughs> said to him, Al said to him in Italian, that means the sausages are burnt. That was his way of saying, I'm as drunk as you are. I don't know either. <laughs> but Frank said, oh, what he said, if I told you that, he closed his place down. No, he just enjoyed having fun on stage. It's where he he really came to life more than anywhere else on stage. And, and giving back to his audience was one of the greatest thrills of his life. And being that you were his road manager, I've traveled mm -hmm. with a band before. And, you know, sometimes it's like this is the 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 twelfth time I've heard this particular song, but you're sitting there on the side stage or whatever, and there's that magic moment where you think, wow, I've never heard it like this. Can you remember perhaps a certain concert or a per certain performance that has always stayed with you in particular? You know, that's, as Frank would say, and it's politically incorrect, that's like asking a fat man what his favorite food is. <laughs> there were certain nights where he would just be so involved in, in what he was doing. There was an, a night where he sang a Hoagie Carmichael tune, which 
in my opinion, everyone is is over the moon about Stardust, but in my opinion, I think this one surpasses Stardust, the song called I Get Along Without You Very Well. Mm. And he just, for some reason, uh, was so invested in that song that night. I can only imagine what was running through his mind, whether it was Mrs. Nancy or, 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 or Ava or, or none of the above, Julia Prouse. I can only imagine who he could have been thinking about, but it was to the point where I, I could literally see it, the, the tension in his, in his, in his face. So I didn't think to ask him after the show because I didn't want to bring him back to that place wherever it was because it was, it was deeply emotional for him. But uh, those are the kinds of things that, uh, and listening to him night after night after night, it, it, he never failed to, to do something like that almost every single show. Well, I want to go into Mrs. Nancy Sinatra Sr. a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was very fortunate, I think. We never recorded them. They were never for broadcast. But I had a couple of phone conversations with her, and I was always just I, I never could believe that she was calling me. It was immediately evident what a special woman she she was. And I'm hoping you can talk Absolutely. about her. She she appears a couple of times in the book. Yeah. She was quite a lady. She really was quite a lady. I had some very uh, heavy conversations with her. I got to know her extremely well, especially toward the latter years of, of Frank's life, because she lived not that far and once he moved up from the desert and was living on Foothill in Beverly Hills, she was literally, her house was literally like four minutes away from where Frank lived. And so I would go over there at least once a month to, to have lunch with her and, and, and converse with her and, and do things like that. And she was uh, a very, very giving, kind, gentle, classy lady. But yet, at the core of it, she was still that sweet Italian New Jersey housewife. So it, it, it was a mixture of all of those things. And some of the conversations I had with her were very revealing as to the depth of her feelings for him. Hmm. We talked about after he left in the early 50s uh, and, 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 you know, what, that whole situation with Ava Gardner. And I said, you know, why is it that you didn't grant him a divorce as quickly as most women would have done? And she said, well, because fooling around is one thing, she said, but he was a very devoted father. And with the exception of the physicality, she said he was an extremely devoted husband and an extremely devoted family man. And he always came back to me. He always came back to me. She said, and the only, she said he, he just, he was constantly there for the children. And she said, the only reason that I actually decided that it would be best to grant them a divorce, she said, Tony, back in those days, if you were a married man and you had kids and you were obviously a celebrity, she said, and fooling around publicly on your wife, it began to hurt him professionally. And there was become, becoming a, a major backlash with regard to his career. 
Mm. And she said, and I stand to watch that happen because I know how much that meant to him. She said, and that's why I granted him a divorce because I wanted to set him free and let him do what he needed to do. And yet he continued to be the same devoted man to us, even though he was no longer my husband. And as I put in the book, the degree of that devotion actually sometimes cost him with, with Ava. Hmm. She would get jealous. Like, uh, yeah, sure, you're going back there to spend a few days with your kids. Yeah, but, uh, but who else is in the house? Nancy Sr. Uh-huh. So do you want to be with her or you want to be with me? She could be, from what Frank said, she was a character and a half. <laughs> but Miss Nancy, and I also said to her, I said, okay, so after you divorced him, within a few years, especially after Tina was born, I said, you were still a young woman. I said, why, why didn't you think about remarrying? She said something very interesting. She said, I never wanted my children to have any doubts as to who their father was. Wow. She said, and in addition to that, and then she chuckled, she said, after you've been with him, she says, where am I going to go? <laughs> <laughs> and she remained single for the rest of her life. <laughs> wow. I think that uh, she was hoping that at some point, maybe there'd be a Hollywood ending and, uh, and they would get back together. But, but the fact that that didn't happen is, is almost... I shouldn't say immaterial, that lessens it too much. But the point is that his relationship with Nancy Sr. was the single longest friendship in his entire life. Wow. And I did my best without causing any grief. I did my best to make sure that it remained that way. I, I, I tried to be a part of keeping them in connection, in communication with one another. And, uh, and I'd like to think that I was relatively successful at, at that. Hmm. You have made me misty-eyed and laugh in, in the same minute. That's a rare thing in an interview. <laughs> I guess it rubbed off. The man rubbed off. <laughs> well, again, the book, it's Sinatra and Me. In the Wee Small Hours by Tony Opetisano. Tony O, our guest. A lot of times when somebody writes a book, there's this, I guess, tug of war because there's things that you can say that are true. And then on the other hand, there's things that maybe people don't want you to say. How did you write the book? You know, you, of course, you want to pursue the truth in what you write. But at the same time, you, you know, sometimes there's things that are sensitive. How did you how did you do it? Uh, I made a conscious decision to try to, on some of the things that were sensitive and not so pretty, I tried to decide which things really should be in the book. And, and my, my, the gauge that I used was, did any of this have an impact on the rest of Frank's life? Did this have an impact on his mental state? And so that's how I chose which things of sensitivity, sensitivity that I should put in and not put in. And even, even the things of sensitivity that I did put in, I tried to, <laughs> I tried to be as Walter Cronkite as I possibly could. Hmm. And just, just the facts, not 
slant it with my feelings one way or another and let the reader form their own opinion without me trying to sway where their head would go one way or the other. Because there were things, obviously, in Frank's life that, that did affect him. And so I felt that they should be they should be told. Something else that people will read in the book is there. there's some interesting stories, I thought, about Frank Sinatra, the ultimate artistic icon, interacting with other people that we think of as iconic, like Madonna and Bono. What was it like from your perspective to see the great Frank Sinatra interacting with another star? You know, it's funny. He was such a giving person, and his ego would disappear. Hmm. He didn't... It's a similar situation I had with, with Rickles. He didn't look at himself through the same prism as the rest of the world. And if, if he would hear about a deal that someone made where they were getting tens of millions of dollars more than, than he would have in that situation years earlier, he was extreme. He would just applaud for them. He thought that was absolutely terrific. Yay, good for them. Hmm. Great. And, you know, he, um, he appreciated people's talent and would applaud that. And sometimes if he had an opinion or some advice, he wasn't shy about doing that either. And more times than not, these people were falling over themselves to be receptive to any tip that Frank Sinatra is about to give them. Because they were looking at him as Frank Sinatra, yet he was just a singer trying to give another singer a pointer that he thought might help further their their musicality. Interesting stuff. You know, some people believe that there's uh, uh, such a thing as coincidences, and some people don't. But I, I want to tell you, today I was waiting. I had, I had to do some serious waiting, and I decided to buy a People magazine, which I never do. I, I want to stress, I haven't bought a People magazine in years, and I had no idea, but here's the People magazine with, with Ricky Martin on the cover, and I start flipping through it. This is today, mind you. <laughs> and you've got, you, there's our friend, Tony O, and of course, Frank Sinatra here. You got featured in People magazine, an article, Frank and Me, by Liz McNeil. How about that? I, um, I'm, I'm extremely humbled by that. Trust me, I am. I'm pinching myself to realize that 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 actually has happened. Liz McNeil, by the way, is a very, very sweet lady, very down-to-earth, very personable, and very charitable, very giving writer. She's very, very we had many great conversations on the phone. But it, it you know, it, it doesn't feel like it's really happening, to be quite honest with you. I'm, I'm very flattered and humbled by it. And I don't know... You know, I can only imagine what it's going to feel like when I go in the supermarket later today or tomorrow and stand in the checkout line and see that thing on it. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I never thought anything like that would happen to me for me. But you know, again, thank you, Frank. Hmm. Another gift. Twenty three years after he's gone. Writing can be such a a, a revealing thing, a self revealing thing. No, no matter what, you, you could write about the most technical thing, and because you have to go inward when you write, it just happens. And I'm wondering, Tony, were there any revelations that came to you writing this book? 
I wouldn't say quite revelation is the wrong word, but it just it just underscored how much we had in common, which is why we clicked and became such so close. And again, part of that had to do with the fact that Jilly was vouching for me and Jilly was like the brother Frank never had. And again, there was a lot of a lot of familial values that that he and I both grew up with, even though we were 36 years apart age wise. There was a lot more that we had in common that I didn't realize. Our approach to life, our approach to people. Jilly was right. We, we ended up being a good fit. But it's really ironic, though. There are a lot of ironies. I didn't, I purposely didn't stress in the book, but ironically enough, as I said, Frank became sort of like a pseudo second father to me. And ironically enough, my father, my blood father, uh, was named Frank was also born in 1915, although he was born in March and Sinatra was born in December. And literally, they died within a year of each other. Hmm. Yeah, it was, um, there's a lot of idiosyncrasies, a lot of cross connections that let, you know, lent, lent more, more depth to my relationship than, than I realized just, you know, walking around living my day, my, my life day by day. Will you be doing any kind of book signings or anything now that uh, the world is starting to open up a bit? Right now, there's nothing on the calendar for that. I'm, I'm assuming it's Simon & Schuster somewhere down the road, although I'm not, I'm not quite sure when they're going to feel comfortable doing that. And, you know, I don't know, being that this is, this is the first and maybe the last book I'll ever write, I don't know how long the window is from the time that a book is released until it's no longer smart to be out there still hyping it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not quite sure. Nothing on the calendar, no. The last time we talked, you were mentioning that for Frank Sinatra, one of the places where you could be the most creative was the recording studio. And mm -hmm. I'm hoping you can tell us, what was it like as an observer to see Frank Sinatra recording, singing in the studio? Ultimately, it was an absolute thrill to be there watching him do what he did, just the energy. And he was right, he was right. It, it, the, the chemistry that exists when you're right in the thick of it between the musicians and him, it's, it's very tough to duplicate. We're, we're most recording artists these days, as I explained to Frank, when he was saying, geez, you mean I'm not gonna be in the studio with most of those people I'm duetting? I said, well, listen, Frank, most of the artists today are accustomed to laying down the rhythm section and then a week later they lay down the strings and then the horns and everything else and they go in a month later and go into an isolation booth and they and they lay down the vocal they're not they're not accustomed to walking into a studio let alone legendary studio a hmm. with a huge orchestra live knowing that the meter is running and then look across the room and see your face <laughs> as i said i look i said you know what you're going to get you're going to get dust is what you're going to get <laughs> But, you know, I had a conversation with him, which I allude to in the book. Having been a musician and a singer, I kind of was trying to figure out why he was being a bit apprehensive, even though he was really excited about doing the duets thing. And part of it was that, as I just said, about not being in the studio at the same time. And I said, well, you know, remember we were sitting by the pool down in the desert and, and we listened, we heard that that great song come on by Natalie Cole, her version of Unforgettable. Yeah, 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 yes. Well, how long has Nat been gone? 
and that clicked in his mind. So it is, yes, okay, so it is possible to get a beautiful recording, even though you're not there at the same time, even though he would much have rather preferred doing it that way, because any other duets that he did film-wise or anything else before that, he was one-on-one, the stuff he did with Keely Smith, and, you know, they were in the studio together, but different time, different, you know, different process. But it was a thrill to be in the studio with him and watch him do what he did. Especially in a lot of a lot of the tunes were one take, and some of the, quite a few of the musicians that were there were guys that had been with him forty years earlier in that very same studio recording the original version for Capitol. It was exhilarating, to be honest. Well, Tony O, thank you so much for yet again coming on the show. And again, I'm going to I'm going to hold up the book here, Sinatra and Me in the Wee Small Hours by our guest, Tony Opetisano with Mary Jane Ross from Simon and Schuster. It's a great book. I'm really thrilled that you wrote it. And I'm really thrilled to have this chance to talk to you. Well, I, it's it, believe me, it's my pleasure, my honor. And it's always great to be speaking with you. And and kudos also to my collaborator, Mary Jane Ross. She she did quite a bit of the heavy lifting when it came to, you know, going through FBI files and stuff like that <laughs> to corroborate what. So at any rate, but and to Alan Nevins, the man who represented me, who also helped push me to do this book. But I appreciate that you asked me to come on. It's an honor. I'm flattered. And anything I can ever do for you, I'm a phone call away. Well, for anybody out there who has read the book or is about to read it, is there anything you would say in closing? I would like to think that I hopefully accomplished what I set out to do and give the world a peek at Frank Sinatra, the man, the human being. That's what that's what I was hoping to accomplish. And I'd like to think that I did. Well, Tony, again, thank you so much. And I think you have accomplished that goal of yours. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Be well. Take care of yourself. Goodbye.